Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Thank you for joining Father Steve Macias and me, Andrea Schwartz, for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Today is April 26th, 2019. Now, the initial question we will be posing is this. Why are many Christians cavalier about God's designation of what constitutes an abomination? So, Steve, I'll throw this over to you to define the term biblically and then look behind this question to examine what really is the issue. To begin with, I think we have to talk about this word abomination, which of course occurs throughout the Old Testament and also all the way to the New Testament. It's this idea that this is something that God dislikes. But we have a a magical view of it, I think, in our modern culture of abominations are somehow attached to ceremonial law or they're attached to the superstition of the Jews We have categories set up in our mind of there are abominations for food or abominations for behavior, but we don't have an idea of what abomination means because it's largely a foreign word. And it can be traced back, of course, through etymological sources. It's difficult to do this because obviously the components of a word don't make up the meaning of the word. It's how we understand it that makes its meaning. But I think it's helpful if you take apart the word abomination and you say, you know, this is from the Latin, it's from ab homine. Think of abnormal, that prefix that means, you know, separate from or different from or away from, and homine meaning obviously man. So abomination is man moving away from something. So when we see uh, God's law or God's word call something an abomination, we should be thinking, this is the Lord through his inspired word, whether it's Genesis or In the book of Matthew, this is the Lord saying, this is something that you do or believe or participate in that moves you as man away from who you were created to be, which is difficult, I think. Right. So let's just go back a little bit. So sin, as defined by the Westminster, is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So our sin... An abomination synonymous, or is one considered worse than the other? Well, I think that there, in the scripture itself, are categories of sin. Our Lord sets up categories for sin, sins of the heart, sins of the the flesh. The Old Testament describes sins that God will punish us for. Of course, any single sin will separate us from the the, uh, presence of our Lord. But there are some sins that our Lord has set out and says, these are the things that the Lord hates. And it's that language that the Lord uses for something called an abomination, something that is so unmanlike that Shakespeare would say abomination was the same as beastly behavior. And of course, bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, lying, doing bad things with our money, these are all considered abominations. Where this gets difficult, I think, for the modern Christians is there are things called abominations that you just described we, that we cavalierly enjoy or partake in or defend, uh, something uh, that's called an abomination related to our diet uh, that we somehow avoid here in 
American Christianity. Well, at least some people do. <laughs> but abomination, of course, is not the same as every sin, but abomination is God's way of saying these particular events are detested more intensely by God. Okay, so if we're going to define our sanctification as our move toward God in terms of being holy, if we're going to define our holiness, it will be based on our conformity to God's law. And prior to being able to be sanctified, we need to be justified. And so we don't participate in our justification other than to receive it. That's right, but by, our, by faith alone. Right. <laughs> However, that's the beginning of the Christian life. It's not the end. And so it seems to me that abomination and holiness need to be contrasted in as much as if abomination is moving away from something and holiness is moving towards something, that these things need to be discussed in the same sentence or paragraph to us to have a really good understanding. Absolutely. And I think if you understand even the, the pre-temple view of, of justification and holiness, you know, start with Abraham, where Hebrews says he was, of course, saved by his faith, but then he's called to a type of, a, of covenant faithfulness to live inside some God-prescribed boundaries. He's called to enter the covenant that he is received by faith, by this ritual sign, circumcision, and then there are ritual behaviors that are to keep him and his body ceremonially or, or religiously clean and distinct from the people that are around him. You see that from Abraham as that evolves into a temple system with a, a more complicated system of making something that is abominable go from being something that's sinful into something that's clean or upright, that there is a a movement in God's people, they're called from their, their bondage, but then they're gradually purified or made clean by God's uh, you know, ceremonial or temple or ritual systems. So you used a very powerful word. You said things that God detests. And if you go to a concordance, which I did in preparation for this, there are, if you go to the online concordance, there are four pages of where the word abomination shows up in scripture. Sometimes abomination is what, for example, the Egyptians consider an abomination. That word is used there. And there are other places where what God considers an abomination. And so abomination is sort of a universal understanding. Every religion, as the Bible shows, will have some definition of abomination. That's right. And even that word, again, abomination, has in there this little root word of omen, of, of belief, of purpose, of predestination. And so abomination is at its core a religious idea. Uh, to participate in, a, in an abomination, whether you're a Egyptian or a Malachite or a Jew, is to somehow break the standard that your God said is what you're to do. And so, like you said, the scripture includes abominations by God's standard and by false God's standards. So we need to examine that because there are too many Christians who will argue that God doesn't hate. God's only love 
And so, of course, love ends up having no meaning if there is no opposite to it. And one of the more basic definitions of love is obedience. And Jesus says, those who love him keep his commandments. So how do we sort of unpack the idea that there are a lot of professing Christians who now have defined abomination differently than the Bible does, and specifically as Jesus does. Well, the in the Gospels, we see Jesus talking about the religious leaders of his days of embracing uh, abominations, of doing what was right in their own eyes. And then in the New Testament church, we see uh, Paul writing to Titus that the mark of a, a false Christian or even a false teacher was that they claim to be a part of God, but then they do things, and, and, and St. Paul uses this word here, that are detestable to God. And so uh, whether we are in conformity with God's standards, whether we are practicing abominations for the early church and for the apostolic fathers, for uh, Jesus himself, was the standard by which we said, are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? And so I think the, the difficulty, though, is we have in our, our modern hermeneutic and, and uh, biblical interpretation methods have so separated the law of God from our daily life that we think that they're opposed. We've so separated the system of, of kosher laws, the system of the temple from the work of Jesus that we don't understand how they're actually fulfilled. We don't understand what the picture was for the Jews, what the point of the law was. We've just now come into Jesus resurrected, therefore we're free from everything and free to do whatever we please. So to me, it's really telling that when Christians will argue over whether or not eating certain foods are an abomination or not, this past week, I thought I was responding to somebody's joke up on Facebook. That person said, if, hey, all you people who follow the biblical dietary laws, you're missing out on bacon. And I thought it was a smiley face post. And I said, yeah, well, there's turkey and there's beef bacon. Well, oh, my goodness. Now I had all sorts of people deciding that my comment required instruction. And it got to one point where somebody said, if I believe in the observance of the biblical dietary laws, I did not agree with the fact that Jesus told people that the Gentiles should hear the gospel. Mm. Okay, so why will most Christians not argue that the things that the scripture calls abomination in terms of lying lips or uh, a false balance or the wicked, all all these things, and, and homosexuality, some will say that's an abomination. Why are they not even willing to examine, despite the tradition in American Christianity of the Easter ham, for example, why aren't they at least have a fear of the Lord that says, wait a minute, I practice something that the Bible classifies as an abomination. I don't think it would apply just to maybe a particular view of the kosher laws, but also to, uh, you mentioned just weight and measures. Most Americans practice with their credit cards, with their uh, lending habits, with their (laughs) investments, with a a variety of their different uh, financial vehicles, what God would consider unjust measures. They participate in a system that uses unjust measures. 
but they have no issue submitting to that system or even questioning whether or not something like the Federal Reserve or even a, a corner store money lending scheme, if those are abominable in the sight of the God, if those take advantage of uh, the individual or the family or the destitute, these are areas and they do something else that the, the Lord says is abominable and they turn a blind eye to what God has said. And at the heart of it, I believe that Christians have segmented our parts of their life. They think uh, Sunday and worship and the Bible are these kind of religious or spiritual ideas. And so what I do with my money, my time, my family, my marriage, my kitchen, <laughs> what's in my refrigerator, that God's law doesn't really speak to those things. Or if it did at one time, it's now been done away with and I don't have to pay attention to that. And you have people who will say, yeah, well, that was at one time, but not now. And very few of those people who say that could even tell you why they think that. It's not like they have been extensively studying the scripture and now can give a biblical exegesis on why, for example, the dietary laws may not have been rescinded. Right. Before we get into that, because I do think that's worthy of a discussion, if you go to the book of Proverbs and you look at all the places where the word abomination is used, the one that is particularly telling for me is Proverbs twenty nine twenty seven that says, An unjust man is an abomination to the just, and he that is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. So it clearly is talking about each has a reference point. But the chapter before that, Proverbs 28, 9, says, He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Mm. Now, that's strong words. It is, and it's hard for... Americans to hear. <laughs> it's hard for anyone to hear, really, because it says that the God that made you is concerned with more than just rescuing you from this world and this body and this life, that he has called you to something that involves every part of your life. When Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And I know some people will say, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And now whatever I put inside my body, God has no problem with. That's but right. is that true? I mean, if God doesn't care about your diet, if he doesn't care about what you wear, if he doesn't care about the occupation you have, then what is he God of? That's right. And I think that part of it is, is they miss the idea that salvation or, or being saved by Jesus is really about making you clean. We have these pictures, uh, of course, of unclean and unclean foods, but it's much larger than that. Everything that Jesus himself does in the passion, uh, in the crucifixion, all of that is about making you and I clean just from the stain of our sins. But cleanliness and those laws are symbolic and, and ritual ideas that we're just not familiar with. There are ideas that go back to uh, washing. There are ideas that go back to uh, what we put in our bodies. There are ideas that go back to the law of God purifying who we are. And a lot of that was kind of uh, mediated through the Jewish temple, right? You had ceremonial washings that would 
clean you if you had unclean things happen to you, if you touched a dead body, if you ate the uh, unclean food, if you had done unclean things, if something in your heart had caused your outside body to, to do something to make you unclean, you had a need to be clean. The situation for the, the Israelite in uh, a thousand years before Christ and the situation for us today has not changed. Our actions make us unclean. We need a savior not just to rescue us, but to make us clean. Isaiah says we are an unclean people. And so how is it then that our Lord makes us clean? The, of course, the answer is through Jesus. But what we often miss, even though we recite the words during this Easter week, is that our Lord takes everything that belonged to the temple and its cleanliness rituals and puts it upon himself. Uh, he takes uh, the ritual washings and it's translated into the washings of baptism. He takes the very physicality of coming to the temple to ask for your sins to be forgiven upon himself. You know, the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were aghast that Jesus proclaimed the power to forgive sins himself, something that belonged only to the rites of the temple. And so everything about Jesus is about making you clean. But in the Old Testament, that was done through behaviors, through actions, through avoiding and overcoming abominations. And so after Christ's crucifixion, the means, the, the matter, the, the medium, the mediatorial work of making you clean has been accomplished. Not that you don't need to be cleaned, but that the material to make you clean has been provided. You can come to the Lord now and be made clean according to his standards. He has made it possible for you to become clean. And to carry the temple analogy, we're told that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So to not try and get your head around and your heart around what the implications of all this is, too many people want to discard the first two-thirds of that heavy book. That's just background material, and we don't really have to know it. So I don't even know how you can even call yourself a New Testament Christian, because without the Old Testament, the fulfillment of prophecy is meaningless, because if you're not going to pay attention to the Old Testament, then exactly what did Jesus accomplish? And what did he accomplish? And I think that's another point of contention. Is the obligation to the law done away with when Christ is crucified? Is the obligation of the law done away with when Christ is buried? Is the obligation to the law done away with as Christ is resurrected? And the answer, and St. Paul agrees with us here, is your obligation to the law is not done away with. It is paid in full. The obligation to the law doesn't disappear. It's been fulfilled by the work of Christ. And now you have the ability to obey the law, which you couldn't do before. That's right. See, and, and this is where people get confused because they look at the you know, several hundred laws of the Old Testament. They look at the laws about uh, eating certain types of meat. They say, God says, don't eat the pig. So we don't eat the pig. But then over the years, we see Christ comes and he appears to his people and says, okay, you're obeying the law about not eating the pig, but you've added all these other things upon it. You know, today, Jews don't eat beef and cheese because of some weird thing about mixing meat and cheese. They've added to God's law. But God, in uh, Christ's work, was not attempting to do away with any responsibilities or obligations. He was coming to make it possible for you to do what you could never do on your own, which is keep 
that cleanliness, keep that law, obey his commandments. And so through his work, that power is transferred not just to abolish the law, which Christ says he does not come to abolish the law, but his power has come to make it possible for those who become by the temple, Jesus, to become the temple of the Holy Spirit, to become cleanly, pure sacrifices that then spread that cleanness to the rest of the world. And so that has a lot to do with how you view the law. If you view the law as a burden, as an obstacle, as opposed to your sinfulness and your sin as the burden, then you're going to justify how we no longer have to do these oppressive laws anymore. But you and I have discussed, if you're not going to accept God's definition of abominations and be judged by those, then you're going to be judged by other religions' definitions of abominations. Wouldn't you say today that under the banner of humanism, there are all sorts of things that are considered abominations that in actual fact the Bible considers holy and righteous? That's right. You know, the idea of having multiple kids uh, is considered a an abomination today. How dare you pollute the world? Uh, don't you know we're we're approaching overpopulation? Don't you know we don't have the resources? Don't you know your children are contributing to the carbon buildup of our planet? What an abomination for you to pollute this world, to profane our God, <laughs> the Mother Earth, with more children. I'm, there's lots of examples of that. Right. Well, give some more because I think I think this opens people's eyes to the idea of. We better be on the right side of this definition. So what are some other humanistic abominations that we're supposed to be careful not to commit? Since we started about on kosher, we started talking about food loss. We have the same thing here on, on the American side. Have you ever been to somebody's house <laughs> and they have their own set of kosher laws? You know, they're, maybe they're, they're gluten-free or maybe uh, they're, they're vegan now or uh, maybe they don't eat processed sugar, uh, or maybe they look down on you because you had McDonald's before you came over. You know, they have their own idea of what foods are acceptable, not by some you know, holy standard of what makes you pure or not pure, but by some humanistic standard. Or maybe, as is done in the you know, U.S. government schools, they have said, here is the perfect food pyramid. Here is the kosher standard according to the USDA. You're supposed to have this much grains, this much fruit, this much vegetables. And if you break this rule, we're going to pull your funding because you're not living kosher enough for the U.S. government. Or, or maybe outside of food, you have other kosher laws, right? Uh, you look down on somebody because uh, their responsibility to uh, their family requires them to say, we need to keep this child. Uh, how irresponsible for you to put a burden on a young mother who has her whole life in front of her. What an abomination for that young woman to have to throw away her entire future, her career, those great and holy things that she's going to do for the humanistic empire for the sake of a child. Can't we just do away, abort that child so that her rights and future and flourishing according to our humanistic standards are not extinguished. You know, it's this kind of backwards thinking. And I think that it really points to the fact of exactly whom do you fear? If you're concerned about expressing a biblical perspective and backing it up with thus saith the Lord, 
but this could get you in trouble with the state or with your job or whatever it is. It really points to the fact that you fear man, you fear the state more than you fear God. And so inadvertently or advertently, you join the company of the wicked and Proverbs twenty one twenty seven says, the sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he brings it with a wicked mind? And so I really do think that it would be a good sobering moment for people who are so sure they have this concept settled in their mind to go back and reexamine it and say, wait a minute, have I actually been in sin, but kind of written it off to God loves me no matter what I do. Right. And there comes down to the idea of, am I living a a pragmatic life? Am I living in order to please the men and women around me and my personal goals? Or am I living a a holy life? And those are really opposites uh, because what the laws of the Old Testament, the purity laws are telling us is that not only are you called to be a part of this tribe. Not only are you called to make a covenant with your Lord and serve him alone, but you are supposed to be separate, a a distinct people away from the things of this world. And that gives us, you know, a picture. Uh, Rush Dooney, I can't remember the lecture right now, but Rush Dooney has a quote that says, you know, outside the temple, you're outside of God. In the Old Testament, if you were outside the temple, If you didn't have a connection to the sacrifice that was made at the temple, you did not have a connection to God. The only way to get to the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is through his terms, through his temple. Without the temple, there is no hope. Uh, That's very uncomfortable for us because we're looking for people to come to God their own ways. We're looking for people to say, I don't agree with that, but God still loves me. The truth is, through the temple only can you be with God. And so since Jesus himself has taken the temple upon him, without Jesus, there is no God. And so Jesus himself takes on not just the benefits of the temple, of offering forgiveness, of offering cleanness, but he also takes on the standards of the temple. In order for you to come and put on that white robe and be pure in the eyes of the Lord, you are obligated to live as though you were coming to a real temple, to be pure rather than profane, and to live in the terms of of God's law and God's standards rather than your own. And if Christians wonder, why is it that there's so many people who go to church, there's so many people who profess to be believers, and yet we can see little to no effect in terms of what's happening societally, I think it goes right back to this. If you can't look at the scripture and say, we are called to follow what God says, even if the whole world says you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're a homophobe, the scripture says, let God be true and all men liars. But how many people really reverse that in their practical life? They say, let the majority decide what is right and wrong. And, you know, we can have intellectual disagreements with it, but we must conform to that because that's what most people say. Then you're in the camp of the wicked and the foolish. And these are things that the scripture is clear about. It's an abomination to God. And, and I think it's a matter of, of being a consistent, 
Christian. You know, we are all hopefully striving to be uh, internally self-consistent, mindful of our presuppositions that we're putting before the world an example and a purpose for our witness. And going back to God's law and God's standards allows us to say to the world, there is an expectation of what God has for you both before and after you come to the cross. And you pointed this out earlier that the world loves to pick at our inconsistencies. Uh, It'll say to us, well, you say homosexuality is a sin, but I saw you eating that shrimp taco. You know, the Lord said that the shrimp is an abomination too. And they attempt to dissect the God's standards. But if somehow they can show an inconsistency in God's law, if somehow they can show a way that God himself is not perfect, pure, and clean, then that they somehow have an excuse. And so it's very important that in our testimony, our witness, that we are striving to be uh, consistent Christians in every area of our life. I know that all of us will fail, of course, in some respect, and we'll have to be repentant of our hypocrisy. But it is the hypocrisy of Christians who ignore what God calls an abomination that is leading people to perdition, giving them an excuse for their sins. If we really want to welcome and rally people into the kingdom, we need to present a gospel that is wholly consistent, wholly self-fulfilling, wholly saying that what began with Adam and through Abraham, through Moses, continues through Christ and the apostles and even to us this day, that we have maintained this clean living for the purpose of the gospel. Right. And every time you put something in your mouth, you wear something, whatever it is, and as you pointed out, Sometimes it's impossible to know if you you know what somebody put in the food you're being served. So we're not talking that if you accidentally or intentionally eat pork, that means that you're going to hell. That, that's not the orientation. The orientation of the believer is, I want to do what God will delight in. I do not want to participate in those things that are an abomination. And I've seen in Christian textbooks the explanation as to why the Israelites did not eat pork was that they didn't know about trichinosis and they didn't realize that they should cook pork longer. Can you imagine that as a reason to say, this is what God said there, but he forgot. He told them all these other things. He just forgot to tell them to cook it longer. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to believe. It's also this idea that somehow modern man is more evolved or more developed than the, the prehistoric man. We've somehow bought into this kind of evolutionary thinking that, that Adam was created, you know, primitive. And as the time went on, maybe Abraham was a little more sophisticated. And now finally, now that we have our, our iPhones and our Facebook uh, we are the true dehumant, the, the high peak of human intelligence, which is the exact opposite of what our Lord says. He says that an intelligence and ability is not related merely to the collection of information, but it's an ethical idea. Wisdom and, and knowledge go together as a part of obedience to God's law. And so there may, of course, I'm sure you would admit, be health benefits to obeying kosher laws. But that can't be the primary reason for why God established uh, his law or his, his, uh, his boundaries, you know, for us to even talk about marriage that way, say uh, homosexuality is wrong because it's better for a child to have a father and a mother. 
you know, that's that more pragmatic thinking. It's better for, for a child to have a father and a mother because God says this is what marriage is, and this is a picture of something that makes us clean and holy. Getting down to those kind of descriptions are saying that God is subservient to our pragmatic intentions rather than saying that there is something about who God is, who gets to design what it means to be human and what it means to be clean and holy. Right. We become too anthropomorphic. In other words, we look at things in terms of man. So God did this, so we could that. Now, there's going to be benefits in obedience. Clearly, someone who is chaste prior to marriage and marry someone else who is chaste prior to marriage are not likely to have venereal diseases. So there will be benefit in the obedience, just like there will be curses in the disobedience. So there are blessings attached to doing things God's way, but it, I, I think it's um, wrong, as you said, to say God did this so that we could be happier or better. I think happier or better is a consequence of obedience rather than the purpose of the law. That's right. And that was really the point of the Proverbs too. Listen, son, attend to this wisdom. This is the way of, of peace, of affluence. Uh, we talk about the law as some kind of, of burden, or some kind of, of thing that's going to hold us back from the delights of this world. And yet the scripture describes the law as the true delight. Uh, that It's inside this circle, <laughs> inside these boundaries, inside these markers that the law marks off, that we really find true delight, purpose, happiness, health, all of those fulfillments that we are actually looking for are not outside the boundaries of the law, they're inside. And really that's what's testified to by Christ's obedience to the law. You know, he's not the lawless Messiah. He is the Messiah that upheld every bit, every jot and tittle of the law was obeyed and observed by Christ prior to his death, unto his death, after his resurrection, up until his ascension, and even to this day, Christ is without breach of the law. I don't think that the picture we get of Christ is somehow someone who's separating us from his own word. The same Christ who rose from the dead, who conquered sin, who took the temple upon himself, is the same Christ who said, obey these commandments. The same Christ who said, this is an abomination. Those are the words not of some Old Testament figure who had to be fixed and, and rescinded, those are the words of Christ himself. Christ said that the pig is this way. Christ said that the, the thread has to be this way. Christ said that this has to be washed and cleaned this way. There is no red letter Bible. All of it from cover to cover is the word of Christ. If it says it's an abomination, it's because Christ believes it's an abomination. And I know how difficult it is to wrap your head around this. When I, my husband and I first encountered, you know, we're reading Institutes of Biblical Law, and we didn't really know much about Christianity, let alone theonomy and Christian Reconstruction. And I remember at first, believe it or not, it was like, really? But I love escargot, or I love lobster. Well, in retrospect, it's what I really liked was the garlic and the butter. You know what I mean? Because you could, that, that was really what it was in terms of what I liked the taste of. It wasn't a principal thing that I think I'm a better person because I eat lobster or, you know, whatever it is. But we accepted it in terms of, yeah, that's what the Bible says. And I know that for people who have lived 
10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years not considering it and hearing a lot of biblical sermons. I remember hearing a sermon at Easter once on why ham was acceptable as an Easter meal. Quite frankly, I thought the exegesis was very poor. And and we can talk about this a little right now. There are certain passages in scripture where people say, this was rescinded. And I think if they look closely, and especially with what you just said, you'd have to ask the question, did Jesus eat pork? Did Jesus observe laws in terms of blood or clothing or whatever it is? If he did, and he didn't say, by the way, guys, you don't have to do this anymore. Are we on solid ground when we say it no longer applies? Well, and I think there are really two basic things it comes to, not just on on kosher obligations, but you know, there are some Christians out there, evangelicals, who don't think the Ten Commandments apply. There are some Christians who think the, the rules about adultery don't apply. There are some Christians, obviously, who don't think the rules about marriage uh, or, or premarital sex, that those don't apply. And so I don't want to get too hung up on, on just kosher, but saying that there is God's law beyond just this is the law to, to love your neighbor and to, <laughs> to love your Lord, that there is still in the law of God a boundary of what we are allowed to do. And the place where people really get hung up is they, they look at the picture of, of Christ and his disciples comparing them to the Pharisees, right? They look at Mark 7 where they talks about them washing the cups and how Jesus' disciples came to the table without washing even their hands, And so they look at that picture and they say, look, here's an example of Jesus and his disciples overturning the law. They're bringing about a new Christian order, a new law. But the reality is they were obeying the original law. They weren't doing what our modern Christians are doing and adding new regulations to it. They saw that the Pharisees had the tradition of their fathers and they had added additional steps of washing cups and washing their hands before they eat which is really ironic considering if you look at what the, the Pharisees are professing, you know, they had this tradition that they would uh, wash their cups, and they'd wash their hands, and then they would go eat as if, as if to prevent uh, themselves from becoming unclean. Well, if you look at what the actual law of the Old Testament says, it says when a cup or a vessel is unclean, you submerse it in water. You know, there's a process for making something that is unclean become clean, but there's no process like these Pharisees are, are saying, of preventing something from becoming by doing clean things, uh, preventing it from becoming unclean. You see, they're, they're working backwards. They're trying to say and really acknowledging that these Pharisees in their hearts are unclean already. And they're trying to work backwards from being unclean into cleanliness. And the Christians the other way around. By Christ, you were made clean, made clean by his blood. So stay in that way, stay under his cleanliness and stay under the boundary of his cleanliness. And I think that once you think about the law that way, then you recognize it's not really about avoiding certain foods. It's about staying inside of the temple, inside of Christ's boundaries. Now, the other way people look at God's law is they look at uh, the food that came down with St. Peter. You know, after Peter gets this vision of of a... of a sheet with all kinds of animals in it, suddenly that changes their entire worldview, right? The idea is that somehow this vision Peter gets, take and eat, all things are clean. Suddenly from that point on, 
all the thousands of years of history of, of cleanliness, of laws, of, of this is an abomination, this is not an abomination, have somehow been overdone. But the reality is that if that was true, if it's true that through this one vision, everything has been abrogated, then you would expect the scripture to testify that there is no longer any type of uh, adherence to ceremonial laws like food or cleanliness or washing. But yet St. Peter's you know, supposed opponent, Paul, is giving instructions on how to obey uh, cleanliness rituals, how to obey washings, how to teach Gentiles to eat food that is not uh, have the blood in it, how to eat food that is not roadkill. St. Paul is giving instructions to Gentiles to obey kosher laws. But again, if you take a step back and you look at what St. Peter and St. Paul are teaching, is that what Christ has done at the cross is not abolish the law, but make it possible for the cleanliness of the law to be applied to you. Because if we take a step and we say, well, because Christ died and resurrected, the law is abolished, then what we see is this period between Christ's resurrection and Peter's vision of them living in direct contradiction to the promises of the gospel. If the law was to be abolished by Christ's death and resurrection, then why, when Christ returns uh, from the grave, when he's living with them for 40 days, does he teach them to continue to live according to the temple system? keeps feeding them fish and not pigs. <laughs> Why does then Peter and his disciples, when they hear this vision of a sheep, say, never, Lord, has this unclean food touched my life? You know, if Christ's resurrection changed the law, how come Peter didn't get the memo? Why is it this vision later on supposed to explain this? And I think the answer is that we have such a poor grasp of what the law does and is that we can't really parse out the ceremonial or the moral parts appropriately. If you were just being logical, the very next thing that Peter does isn't go out and tell everybody, by the way, these laws of diet no longer count. This was such a stark vision that he gets the message that it's the Gentiles who will be brought in. Not that you'll become a Gentile, but that the Gentiles will become the true Israelites, that the church is the Israel of God. And so a lot of people want to make it that there was, there's nothing intrinsically wrong dietary wise in terms of pork and shrimp and whatever is. So there's no negative consequences. Well, if that's the only basis on which we obey God, do we really think that whatever the fruit was that Adam and Eve partook of, that there was something actually wrong with it and they got sick because of it? Or was the fall a direct result of their disobedience to God's word without examining the nutritional content and whether or not that particular fruit was going to be disadvantageous to them health-wise? Yes. And I'm really glad that you brought up Adam and Eve and that fruit because I think that's another issue that people mistake is we have this really strong distinction in our minds between what is spiritual and what is physical. And Adam and Eve is this picture of how the physical, what we eat affects not just our body, but our spirit, right? You eat the wrong food, you're separated from God, but also you eat the wrong food. The land itself is cursed, right? So there is in the very beginning in the garden, this connection between 
the physical and the spiritual that continues on and on and on. And it's not a coincidence that our Lord, who gives Adam and Eve, you know, this, this special tree, then gives himself upon a tree. And from that tree pours from his side this water and, and blood and offers his body, which is then given as a memorial, something to be eaten and memorial for him, this bread and this wine. There is a connection in our Christian faith between the physical and the spiritual, between what we eat and who we are. And once we begin to begin to spiritualize these things, begin to embrace embrace you know, Martianism, this idea that the Old Testament was a different God than the New Testament, we get all kinds of wacky ideas. And if you go through the institutes and you read uh, Rushduni's work, you can see that for one degree or another, this Christian history has been attempting to hold these two ideas together, the old and the new, the spiritual and the material, and it's fighting, whether it's Arianism or... Manichaeanism, this fighting, this idea of viewing the world in dualities. No, it's, it's God's world. We live inside his boundaries and we live according to the incarnation. Therefore, what we do with our bodies, what we put into our bodies, what comes out of our bodies matters. You know, from the, for the last 20 years, I have conducted biblical law classes with women. And I start off my studies with saying we're going to be studying volume one, the Institutes of Biblical Law. And the requirement of this course is not that you agree with everything I say, nor that you agree with everything Rushduni says. But you take what I say and what Rushduni says or anyone else says, and you line it up with the word of God. And you make an honest attempt at looking at scripture and then examining all your presuppositions and all the conclusions you've had over the years of your walking in faith, and say, is what I'm doing lining up with Scripture? And I say that because the end goal of Rushduni writing the book or of my conducting the classes isn't so that we get disciples of us. I make it really clear, you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. And there is an element in being a disciple of Jesus Christ that you should not go against your conscience, when your conscience is informed by Scripture. So more often than not, people who start the study with me disagree with, well, I don't agree with the dietary laws, or I've had women who have tattoos and say, I don't agree that, you know, tattoos are bad. I have a tattoo that says John 3.16, you know, whatever they say. Or I don't think that, you know, the biblical restriction on, when a man and a woman, husband and wife, can have sexual relations with each other, or how long post-delivery should they resume it, and why should it be a different number of days if they've had a man-child and or a female child. I say, examine the scripture, look at what it says, and then if your desire is to obey God and keep his commandments, then do whatever you do, whether what do you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So it's not me that, that says, okay, I finally agree with what you said. That's certainly not my end goal. My end goal is that you can stand in good conscience and say, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it in obedience, not I'm doing it, and this is an area that God doesn't care about, Because if there's an area God doesn't care about, 
then he's really misrepresented himself because he told us he cares about everything. That's right. And I think what you kind of brought this up earlier. I think what was interesting is I'm going to mix two metaphors here and they're both food related. So we'll, we'll stay, kind of stay on topic, but I think it comes to a, a close here on this idea is St. Paul tells us that there is a progression in the Christian life, right? When you were a child, uh, you behaved like a child and you grew up, right? You went from milk to meat, right? There's this natural progression in holiness and growth and maturity and stature. But then St. Paul also describes uh, in the book of Romans about uh, weaker brothers. And often when we have this discussion about the, the law of God and standards and even anecdotes that, that you particularly have mentioned here, tattoos or even infidelity, things like that, we have a, a tyranny that exists of a weaker brother. And folks will you know, re- be reluctant to obey God in certain areas of their life. And they have embraced a infant faith. They have embraced remaining a child. They have embraced remaining undeveloped because they see the law of God as something difficult. And what I think is most important to recognize in the law of God and and what Christ has done by taking on the ceremony upon himself is that all of us recognize that our obedience comes not from our own strength. And so when folks tell us, as if they are talking to St. Paul themselves, right, how can you cause a man to stumble by putting before him the requirement that he must disobey his homosexual inclinations and find a, a, a woman? Or how can you tell a man that they must forego the taste of bacon in order that they uh, <laughs> come under the yoke of Christ? Or how can you tell a man that he must submit every Lord's Day to God, when he himself loves those 24 hours sleeping in and whatnot, we've reduced the call of the gospel to when it is convenient. And we have used this picture of the weaker brother to allow so many Christians to remain infantile. And the problem is, Christ did not call you to be coddled by the church. He didn't call you to be coddled by your faith leaders. He called you to grow up. He gave you his power, his resurrection power, so that you can obey the law in order that you could grow into that person God has called you to be. The difficulty of the law is that it is working out that inner leaven inside who you are and making you into somebody better. Andrea talked about prosperity. The point of the law's requirements on how to do business properly is it's more difficult not to cheat somebody. But in the long run, by obeying God's law, your business will grow. The same thing is true of our spiritual life. It's more difficult to obey God's law in the beginning. But as you grow in maturity, empowered by the power of the resurrection, you become something, not the weaker brother, but the strong elder who's obeying and conquering and expanding the kingdom by obedience. As we come to the close here, and we normally talk about recommendations, obviously, Institutes, Volume 1. But also, Rajduni took each of the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and has done a commentary on all of them. And you can find different parts of each of those first five books that are going to discuss diet and discuss other rules of cleanliness. 
And then, of course, in his commentary on Romans and Galatians, he really goes into this weaker brother thing. It's not like it's okay to be the weaker brother. The admonition is, if you have a weaker brother, understand where he's at. But the goal isn't to stay the weaker brother. And you won't be able to discern that if, A, you don't know the law and you can't apply it. And, of course, it goes back to, if you want to be wise, you fear God. And now we're back to where we started. What does God say an abomination is? And are you willing to conform to him? That's right. And if somebody has heard this today and thought, well, that's just the Chalcedon folks and they're crazy about God's law, I'd encourage you to go back, pick up the Deuteronomy commentary by John Calvin, read through there, and see if it doesn't comport <laughs> you know, with this type of thinking. And then go to the laws yourself and see what does Christ say throughout his life about keeping the law? What did the Psalms say about keeping the law? What did Moses say the benefits of keeping the law were? And when God's people find themselves in danger, loneliness, struggling, it's because they departed. They embraced the abomination and become beastly, not because they suffered under the law. Amen. All right, my friend, as always, um, as we decide what to talk about, it's good for my study, and then hearing your points of view help me as well, and I hope they're equally beneficial to those who listen. Thank you, Andrea. I really appreciate your, your kindness and your patience with us who may not completely understand the, the kosher view, um, and I'm sure that uh, as a parting word, if we invited you to our house, you're not going to uh, disavow us if we, if we serve the wrong thing, and that you would always welcome Christians uh, and not hold this as a barrier for fellowship either. Not at all. But you know what I do? When I'm invited to someone's house, I'm not afraid. First of all, most people who invite you and want to be hospitable, if I'm allergic to peanuts and I say, please don't have peanuts because I break out in hives, very few people are going to say, well, that's what we're going to have. And if you come to my house, you have peanuts if that's what we're doing. No, most people are very accommodating. So I say we don't eat pork or shellfish. And so if you want to know what it is, we will be able to enjoy with you. And then I say this is acceptable. Even if I don't happen to like lima beans, I don't say, oh, and have no lima beans. Because you know what? I, I can eat things that I don't particularly like. But once it usually opens the conversation to, with a name like Schwartz, oh, because you're Jewish? And I'll say, no, it's not because I'm Jewish. We're Christian. And, and so it opens up a conversation. And it's not about, well, you know what? If you eat pork chops... I can't affiliate with you because that's not the scripture. We are to embrace the idea of sharing our faith and not deciding the outcome of someone's spiritual condition because they don't have the same understanding we do. That's right. So I guess that meant you're going to invite me to your house for dinner. So um, just, you know, let me know when and I'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good. Very good. Thank you, Andrea. Listeners, thanks for joining us. Any comments or questions can be directed to out of the question podcast at gmail.com and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.